Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Claim Your Confidence. Thanks, as always, to my mom for starting us off with the question, are you ready to claim your confidence? I am so delighted to have an incredible woman sitting in front of me. Alina Cho, thank you so much for being here today. But first, a word from our sponsors. Thank you for having me. I love that your mom opens the show. That's so genius. <laughs> I know. Well, I know you're very close to your mom I as well. I am very close with my mother. Yes, I am. I'm so thrilled to be on your podcast. And I'm congratulations, by the way. Thank you so much. Well, I'm thrilled to have you here. You're kind of turning the tables on me. I know. <laughs> so I'm sure that everyone already knows this, but I want to start off by telling a little story about Alina. So I came to New York. I had been in New York for probably about eight years and was introduced to an organization called New Yorkers for Children. And one day during a meeting, Alina walked in. And it was the most incredible moment because I just remember being blown away by this incredibly beautiful, eloquent, fabulously dressed woman and thinking that she just had such incredible insight about New Yorkers for Children and the foster care system in New York. So about a week later, I was walking through the airport in New York and all of a sudden I heard a very eloquent voice and I turned around and it turned out that Alina was on CNN. So that made a lot of sense. And so for those of you who have not had the opportunity to meet Alina in person, I will tell you she's an Emmy award-winning journalist with more than 20 years of experience covering a range of topics from presidential politics to world affairs to investigative reporting and fashion. She's currently a contributor on my favorite show, CBS Sunday Morning. Thank my you. husband, if he were here, would be <laughs> nodding. The most watched Sunday morning program in the United States. She won an Emmy award in 2020 for her interview with Sting at his home in Italy and was a national correspondent at CNN. So Alina, again, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. By the way, did you come up to me at the airport? Because why do I have no recollection of this? No, you were on TV. <laughs> okay. That's how I realized you were on CNN. I did not come up to you. But it was so interesting was, yeah. because I feel like this happens a lot in New York too, where you'll meet somebody and think, wow, they're really impressive. And then it, you later find out why they're so well, impressive. Well, yeah, that happens to me all the time, of course, right? When we go to cocktail parties, you're like, wow, yes, that person was so smart. Oh, Oh, they're the CEO of this company. They're the president of this company. Or they're just, whatever, fabulous, right? Exactly, you know? exactly. And there's a lot of those people in New York. And there are definitely a lot of those people in New York. And I think that goes back to really why I started Claim Your Confidence as a podcast. Because so many people have exposure to incredible women and men around the industry. And they think to themselves, oh, they were just born that way. They've always been like that. And that's why they are so successful. And I wanted to really break that down for people. So let's start at the beginning. You were born in Vancouver, Washington State. Yes, Vancouver, Washington, just across the Columbia River from Portland, Oregon, as I like to say, because I say Vancouver and people think, oh, Canada. That's what I thought when <gasps> I was first That's what a lot it. of people think. Yes, I was born in this small city and Portland was the big city across the river. <laughs> and, you know, it was interesting. You know, you're just living your life, doing your thing as a kid. And suddenly one day I was in high school and I was taking a speech class. And at the end of the speech class, my professor came up to me, Mrs. Jewell with the purple streak in her hair. <laughs> and she said, have you ever thought about going into television? 
Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And I said, no, I never have. Why? And she said, well, you have such great presence. You're a great speaker and you have a great voice. And I know you're thinking about colleges and majors now. I think I was a junior in high school maybe at the time. And so then by default, really, I claimed communication as my major. And that's sort of what got the ball rolling. Yeah. Um, what's interesting is that it really wasn't until I started doing internships during college that I really fell in love with the craft of telling stories. And I felt like, wow, this is something I could really see myself doing. With your high school teacher saying that you have this presence, was it a drama? I mean, was it? were you a dramatic major? I mean, it, where did it, all of this it come was, from? It was a speech class. Uh-huh. And I, I must have given a speech in front of the class. And that's when she pulled me aside afterwards. It's so funny talking about it now because I, I actually can't remember what I was doing that sparked that in her to say something to me. But um, she obviously saw something and had the temerity to stop me and say, you know, why don't you think about this? And it really was that. It's so crazy, right? Yeah. Sometimes it only takes one person yeah. to say, you can do this, you should do this, that will spark something in you. And like I said, it really wasn't until I started really doing it. What I would do is I would do these internships while I was in Boston and then at home in the summer in Portland, Oregon. And I would sort of prey on reporters and anchors who I thought <laughs> might be a little lazy. And I'd say, I'll go out there and I'll, I'll shoot the story. I'll come back and I'll write the story for you. And who doesn't want to hear that, yeah, right? Absolutely. And so as a result, it was really sort of, I was an intern, right? but it was on the job, quote unquote, on the job training. And it was really great because by the time I graduated from college, I then went to grad school. I went to Northwestern for my master's in journalism. But I felt like I was almost a little ahead of the game. Because you've been taking the time and doing the work. I had done like five internships, but I mean, like it was like a record or something. (laughs) I graduated from college, but it really gave me a lot of real world know-how that that you can't learn in a classroom. You just can't. And we're seeing so much of that right now. And I hear so much of that from women around my age who have worked in different industries for over a decade or two decades. And they talk a little bit about the importance of learning on the job and the things that you learn very early on in your career. Totally, totally. Like I consider myself lucky in that I didn't have to shoot my own material. (laughs) But there are a lot of, you know, very small market television stations that still to this day are what you call one man band shops. Mm -hmm. You shoot, you set up the camera, you then go and stand in front of it, you shoot yourself talking, you go back, you, you you do the interviews, you go back to the station, you watch all of it, you edit it, you put it all together, and then you might also be the anchor presenting the news and you're tossing to your piece, you know, so, but it's that kind of experience is very helpful to anyone who's going to television yeah. because you have an understanding of what everyone's job is. Yes. To this day, I go into the edit room at CBS Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. I just did a story and I sat in the edit room with the editor and he said, God, you know, I never have correspondents come and sit. But I think it's really important. It's uh, television is collaborative. Yeah. And it's Um, your story. And it's my story. And um, well, it's a team effort, but but yeah, I take ownership of it. It's my voice. It's my face. And I want it to be the best that it can be. And so I, I at least want to have eyeballs on it. Yeah. You know? So in terms of just having confidence, how much does it take as you 
start your life in journalism and you're starting out in those early years, I always think about the person who has to raise their hand and ask the difficult question. Like, what tips have you learned over the years to really claim your confidence in those moments where you feel like you have to ask something that isn't necessarily going to elicit a great response or you know is going to shake someone to the core? Well, it's funny. I don't know if it was Katie Couric who said this or it was somebody who said it, but it stuck with me. So two things. Number one, I think it was Katie who said, you can ask anything with a smile. Yeah. (laughs) Which sounds like Katie, right? And I love Katie. But so there's that. So Mm -hmm. I think you can't be afraid to ask the tough questions. Listen, that's why I'm here is to ask the the tough questions that people want to know. That's right. right. You know, and not all of them are tough, but some of them are tough. One thing I always say is, and again, this is something I heard from another correspondent far wiser than me, um, who said, Mm over-prepare and then go with the flow. Interesting. And and I think that that's really important. I think when you talk about confidence in an interview, mm-hmm. when somebody is sitting across from me like a head of state, like mm-hmm. a President Clinton um, back in the day, you know, you've got to know the information cold. Right. You've got to walk in and you've got to know it. You've got to read everything. You've got to know it backwards and forwards. And the reason why I say that is because when you're in the moment and when you're in the interview, you have to be able to react mm-hmm. to whatever that person is saying. So it's a conversation. Right. And the only way you can do that is if you know the information cold. Right. And so in your first interviews, I mean, what was your first major interview? What was that like for you? Do you remember? <laughs> I don't remember my first major interview. I remember some of my favorites, but I will tell you, I do remember my very first live shot. So I was the weekend reporter at Chicagoland Television, CLTV, which, by the way, was a very small station. It's the equivalent of New York one, okay, right, sure. in, in Chicago. Uh, but it, um, it wasn't a one-man band shop, but it was um, the local cable shop. I had the luck of getting that as my first reporting job because I was working in a top five market. Chicago's the third largest market in the country. Mm-hmm. But I was working for a small station. So I could still make my mistakes and it wouldn't be on a grand stage, so to speak. Right. So I was hired as the weekend morning reporter for $26,000 a year. And I was making a lot of money. Yes, those are that was big a, money those that day. Big money. <laughs> <laughs> and my first story was I was sent out because the uh, governor, then governor, I think it was, it was Governor Ryan was his name. He had had quadruple bypass surgery. So it was a big deal, you know, especially in in, in the Chicago market. So I was live in front of some hospital. It must have been like minus 10 degrees, you know, Chicago. (laughs) Chicago, right? (laughs) And I remember thinking to myself, because of course I went back and I watched it. Oh my God, this went perfectly. It went great. And then I realized, I looked closer and yes, what I was saying and everything was coming, that was coming out of my mouth sounded fine. I looked, I thought, okay. The issue was, if you looked closely, you could see the veins popping out of my neck. So anybody who really knew me (laughs) could see that I was really Really nervous. nervous. (laughs) (laughs) So everything sounded fine. If I had only worn a scarf. Turtlenecks only in Chicago, as it turned out, would be perfect. I think it would have been okay. But but yeah, that was my first turn. And then, you know, I think it was uphill from there. And then it was uphill from there. But you went into journalism at a time when you couldn't have looked like everyone who was there. I mean, even as a woman. No, no. I mean, I think you're right. And it's interesting that you should point that out because now it's different. Right. But certainly at the time, every time I would go out on a story, they would ask me if I was Connie Chung. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. And you were sort of like, no, that's not who I am. Thank right. you. And I'm, I'm a little bit younger. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's funny because years later, I met Connie at a Christmas party and I told her the story. I said, if I had a dime for every time somebody asked me, are you Connie Chung? Yeah. I'd be a millionaire. Yeah. And she said, oh, for God's sakes, I'm old enough to be your mother. Oh. <laughs> you know, she had the greatest answer and she was so great and so gracious. But, but really, if you think about it, when I was starting out in television, she really was one of the only Asian American faces on television. Right. And so, you know, it's interesting because there was um, a close friend of mine who had a producer, you know, who was Korean, of yeah. Korean descent. I'm also of Korean descent. And he said, would you meet her? It would mean a lot to her. I said, of course. We all went out to dinner. And she said to me, you're such a pioneer. And I thought to myself, oh my God. I had that Connie <laughs> Chung moment and I said, I'm not pioneer. that old. What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. And she said, no, but you are. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've never thought of it that way, yeah. right? Yeah. But I guess that younger generation that's just coming up now, I guess they see me as that. Yeah. It's crazy. But, Absolutely. But, but also... It's flattering, you not know? Not even being... I mean, yes, being Korean, also being a woman, but yeah. so visible, yeah. so incredible at your job. Oh, and thank you. No, but you were covering events. I mean, I remember seeing you... So I grew up in Louisiana, and I remember oh. when you were covering Katrina. Katrina, yeah. And having grown up in Louisiana, you're very used to seeing hurricanes. I can remember endless stories. Of but nothing on that scale. Nothing on that scale. But the interesting thing about growing up there is you never think it's going to be on that scale because it never had been up until that point. Up until that point, right. And so I remember sitting in front of the TV and gripped because I was living in New York. My parents were in Baton Rouge, so luckily they were okay. But And that's where I was staying. I well, was that's staying where with... everyone was staying. And so they were broadcasting from Baton Rouge. And But I do remember seeing you there and just thinking you were such an incredibly calm force oh, thanks, and something Lydia. that was incredibly difficult Thank to you. watch. It was really difficult. I mean, it was heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, I remember taking a family who could not get back to what was left of their home right. in the Lower Ninth Ward, oh, which was the hardest hit, of yeah. course, in New Orleans. And I remember we loaded them up in our car yeah. and we took them there because we had access. And, you know, the cameras were rolling as they pulled up on their home, again, what was left of it. And it was just heartbreaking. I spent a lot of time there. I mean, yeah. I was there, I believe at the time the rotation was something like three weeks on, wow. one week off. And it's a lot down there because it's hot and humid. And we were yeah. at the time staying with a family wow. in Baton Rouge who opened up their home to us. And we were driving in via police escort every day into New Orleans to, quote unquote, report the story. Right. Then we'd have to leave, drive an hour and a half back. We right. know the drive, yeah. right? And put the story together and then go live. But it was, listen, I, I feel so grateful to have been able to to tell those stories. Right. A lot of those stories would not have been told had we not been down there. So, right. but you're right, it was unbelievable. I mean. Yes, we've had crazy bad storms since then, but Katrina was on... It was well, a scale like you'd never seen. It just was a whole yeah. other level. And it, was, it almost looked like Armageddon. I remember going totally. down there maybe five or six weeks later and thinking as we were driving, oh, there's so many people here. There are cars everywhere. And then you realize they'd been submerged. So, of course, they hadn't moved. Of course, because the water had finally um, receded. receded. Yeah. 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 Well, it was wonderful to put two and two together and realize that you were the person who was down there because yeah. it really, as someone from Louisiana who was not able to be there, you were our eyes and ears on the ground. Oh, and it certainly you. felt very comforting to have 
have you there. I did a lot of Walmart wardrobe shopping while I was there. <laughs> I, bet, I bet you did. I bet you did. There was a lot of stuff we had to, you know, but basically that was contaminated, you yeah. know, after one wearer, you know. And so anyway, but that's, that's, a, whole, that's a whole another story. <laughs> so, I mean, it is amazing. I always think of journalism as such an incredible job, especially when you're a national correspondent, because you're going into things as other people are running away. You're the equivalent of the person, almost like a firefighter who runs towards the fire when everyone else is leaving. And so... I mean, I never thought of it that way. I guess you're right. But in many ways, I mean, most people wouldn't run into something that's gone terribly awry with a camera and say, okay, I'm going to stay here for three weeks and Mm, report mm, this. mm. But you've also had such unique opportunities as a result of your job. And I really want to talk to you more about your trips to North Korea, because I know you went there first in 2008, but can you tell us a little bit about being invited back? Well, I will tell you a story that I've actually never told before, which is pretty crazy. So what happened was I've been twice to Mm -hmm. North Korea. I would say to this day, it's probably the most unbelievable story I've ever covered and a most unbelievable place I've ever been. I'm of Korean descent. I have family who either defected or was abducted during the war. So it really is a personal story for me. So what happened was my producer at the time saw a tiny clip in the Times that said that the New York Philharmonic was going to be performing in North Korea as a sort of a musical diplomacy trip. Right. So he came to me and he said, we should go. (laughs) Well, of course. (laughs) Of course we should go. It's a little bit harder than just saying we want (laughs) to go to North Korea and getting on a plane and going. So I lobbied to go. They said I could go. And then... And this is the North Korean government said you could go? Or who says you can go at this point? Well, it's both the government that has to approve your visa. Right. But also the leadership at CNN. Because as you can imagine, it's highly competitive. Of course. And that's a coveted assignment. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people would want to go. Right. So I remember being told, okay, you can go. And then weeks passed. And then I was told, no, you can't go. Oh. By the leadership of CNN at the time. And I said, well, why can't I go? And they said, well, Christiane Amanpour is going. And she's going to be shooting a documentary there. And we think that that's the way we should do things. You know, we don't need to send two correspondents. So I had this idea that I would tell the story of how my family Mm -hmm. split up. Right. Was torn apart during the war. So a personal anecdote. Which, with all due respect to Christiane, who is unbelievable. Yeah. And I adore her and I have great respect for her. That's a story she couldn't tell. Right. Of course. Yeah. So it's really the only time I think in my career, I went to the leadership of the network. I went Mm -hmm. to the president of CNN and I said, I can tell this story. I promise you it will be compelling. Yeah. And they let me go. It's amazing. And what was it like? Well, first of all, Because the U.S. and North Korea have no diplomatic relations, Mm -hmm. you have to fly first to China. So we got on a flight. We flew to Beijing, which is not a short flight. (laughs) We flew to Beijing. We might have stayed one or two nights there, Mm -hmm. got over the jet lag, sort of. Then you get on in an Air Choreo flight, a North Korean flight, which was like getting on a C-130 or like, it was like a military plane. It must've been from the 50s. So it was like this old plane, because if you think about it, North Korea, not a lot of, you know, funds. Right. They're flying old planes. Right. 
and we got on one of those planes. It's all press, 200 members of the press. Oh my gosh. And as soon as you get on, they're handing out propaganda newspapers Amazing. and playing propaganda on the video screens. And you land and they confiscate your passport. That's frightening. At the time, they take your passport, they take your cell phone, and then you get it back when you leave. But while you're there, you have what's called a government minder, and they are watching your every move. Like, I bought these books at the bookstore that were like, at the time, Kim Jong-il was still alive, Uh right? The current leader's late father. And I bought these books, like, they were crazy, like, Kim Jong-il goes to the cinema, like these crazy propaganda books. Oh, my goodness. And I had them wrapped. I was going to take them home and give them as gifts to producers and so forth. And I remember coming home, or coming home, coming back to my hotel room after reporting all day, and my luggage was opened. No. All the wrapping was taken off the books. They'd gone through everything, but that was normal. And would they let you take them from the country at that point? Yes, after but they, they knew? wanted to make sure they knew what it was. Wow. They what also, does that feel like as someone who's so used to having their own privacy? I mean, it was kind of crazy, but it was... And also you knew what you were doing. You were I, just, into. I just expected that. I mean, it was kind of what we thought might happen. Yeah. We never said anything really sensitive in the rooms or anywhere, like, because we thought we... We kind of figured, do I know for sure? No, but we kind of figured our rooms were bugged. Right, right. You know, and, um, you know, if you think about it, it's sort of the last true communist regime. Right. Right. You can't, if you're North Korean, you cannot leave the country. Right. You can have a cell phone now, but you can only call people within the country. Right, it's domestic, is that correct? And so, yeah. And so then you went back again. How did did that happen? So, did you expect after going once, which is obviously something that 99.9% of the people in this world, even more than that, will never experience. What was that like? I think they knew who I was at that point, right, Right. the government. And so at that point, what's crazy is I was coming back from shooting a special on haute couture in Paris. So a little slightly different. Slightly Slightly different different than North Korea. (laughs) Yes. But the beauty of CNN at the time was that you could cover anything. Right. So I was in my office. I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is so great. I'm just going to do expenses. (laughs) Relax. I'm going to chill out. I don't have to be on the air. You know, I'm going to put together this show. My producer knocks on the door and says, go home, pack your bags. We're going to North Korea. Oh, my goodness. And I said, I'm sorry, (laughs) what? And he said, we've been invited by the North Korean government to go to North Korea. And I said, why? Yeah. So because the government is so secretive, they don't really tell you, right? They just invite you to come. And what they said at the time was that it was the 65th, I believe, anniversary of the founding of the country. What we realized when we landed was that, no, that wasn't the case exactly. It was that Kim Jong-il was dying. Interesting. And he was about to name his third son the next leader of the country. And what a time to be there. So it was crazy. Um, The first time I was there, I never saw Kim Jong-il, not once. I mean, even at the Philharmonic performance, he wasn't there. None of the performances, none of the things we were at, This time, the second time I was there, we saw him, I believe, and his son on three different occasions. So he was out in public making sure that everyone knew he was there. And alive, but frail. Right. 
but right. frail. And it was just an unbelievable, again, it was two years, a little more than two years since I had been the first time. And so there were, you know, changes. Like, there were streetlights where there weren't before. In there only were, two years. In only two years. It's amazing. And there were things that I noticed that had changed mm -hmm. that I had the ability to report on, right, because I had been there before. So yeah. I never tire of talking about North Korea. And I always say, if someone gave me the opportunity to go back, I'd get on a plane tomorrow and go. Well, you heard it here. Yeah. <laughs> heard it here you might get a knock on your yeah, apartment door tonight. You never know. You never know. You never well, know. One part of that story that sort of threads through this entire podcast interview is you say when this all happened, you were at the Haute Couture show in Paris. Yeah. And fashion is a real love of yours. And it you is. even brought that to CNN. I did. I did. You know, well, of course, Elsa Clench first brought it to CNN yeah. back in the day. Right. But um, when she left the network, so did fashion. Right. And so I thought, I love fashion. Mm -hmm. And when I started at CNN, basically... I was told, if you have a great story, whatever it may be, mm -hmm. pitch it. Yeah. If we like it, we'll take it. Yeah. We'll let you do it. And so that's what happened with fashion. And I, I sort of started by doing live shots backstage at the Oscar de la Renta show during New York Fashion Week. Mm -hmm. And it morphed into doing, you know, half-hour specials on New York Fashion Week, on Paris Fashion Week. And I had the great honor of interviewing almost every big designer on the planet at the time, you know, Karl Lagerfeld, Donatella yeah. Versace, Marc Jacobs, you know, and it was, um, and, and it was a real thrill. Yeah. You know, and there were also a lot of Asian designers who have said that you gave them moments of spotlight when oh, other people were wow. not reporting Thank on that, you. which again, kind of going back to that pioneer. Yeah. Moment. Well, I did. I, I saw, well, I started to notice a trend that there were a lot of you know, and if you follow fashion, you know this. And right. Lydia, I know you know this. There are a lot of Asian American designers and yeah. Asian designers who are incredibly talented, mm -hmm. who are making it. Um, and it's interesting. The ones that I profiled as newcomers back in the day are now <laughs> are now some of the more established designers, right? right? But it always warms my heart to see some of the new ones cropping up, and it's yeah. and it's so great because, again, those designers who I profiled a decade ago mm -hmm. are now mentoring these new ones who are popping up. And so it's really great. But I just really felt like I wanted to shine a spotlight on an industry that is a huge industry. Mm -hmm. That, you know, Tori Birch and I have talked about this, about how people always associate fashion with fluff. Yeah. And yes, there is a bit of that, you know, but if you think about it, what we wear is a decision that we make every day, that right. every single person makes every day. Yeah. It's a massive industry. Yeah. But during the pandemic, and this was Tori's point, and we talked about this, I did a story on this for CBS Sunday Morning, they weren't being talked about like the restaurants, yeah. like the airlines. Yeah. There was no bailout for the fashion industry, right. like there was for the airline industry, like there was for the restaurant industry. And her point was, and she was lobbying Congress, mm -hmm. her point was, why not? Right. It's a huge industry. Yeah. We employ, employ thousands, thousands of people. Millions of people. Yeah. Millions of people. Absolutely. Uh, so it's great. And I still love to cover fashion. And I do it for CBS Sunday Morning now. So yeah. it's it's great. And you yeah. had your atelier with Alina Cho where you were interviewing everyone. I mean, yeah. you, when did you leave full-time CNN? I left CNN in 2013. So coming up on a 
decade, which is really hard to believe. Nine and a half years. But it's been amazing to watch this evolution and something that I've seen with a lot of my friends. I'm in my early 40s and even my friends in their sort of 30s through the, like, I mean, even into their 60s, well into their 60s, are realizing now that it's not necessarily just about having one job. I mean, you are an editor. You are doing so many different things. So talk to us about that transition and then talk yeah. to us about a little bit about what you're doing right now because it is so exciting and inspirational. Well, thank you. I always say it's always a hustle. Yeah, of course. You know, it's funny. I was just meeting today with a younger reporter for the Wall Street Journal who mm. reaches out to me every now and then for advice. And we met for coffee and I was trying to sort of prop him up. And I said, listen, it's like being that duck where you're paddling furiously under the water. Right. You don't have to let anyone see the paddle. Right, exactly. But you have to paddle. Right, very fast. Very fast. Very fast. <laughs> and not just that. The other thing I said to him was, you are your own best advocate. Mm-hmm. Nobody is going to sell you yeah. like you. Right, absolutely. And if you don't do it, quite frankly, nobody else will. Yeah, action and leads to action. A- that's right. And I always say, the first answer is no. Right. On the way to yes. Yes. And so, you know, I just think you've got to, you just have to, and confidence is a tough thing, right? I think it's something, it's always evolving and you're not always confident about, you know, everything that you're doing, but it's a little fake it till you make it. It's a little just keep moving the ball forward. It's a lot of just never give up. Right. I think that's really, really important. I think we've all been told no a million times. Mm -hmm. I was told yesterday no about something that that I thought was a sure yes, you know? And, but that's that person. Right. You know? And that's that day. And And that's that's, that feeling on that day. And you just have to move on. Yeah. It's hard not to let it get to you, you know? I mean, that, it's tough to be told no. I don't care who you are. So when you go and do a, sort of a pitch, like let's pretend you're back at CNN and you go in there and you pitch a story that you think in your heart of hearts is a story that's going to be, you know, that moment when you're going to North Korea and you have this story about your family and then you find out that someone else is going to go. What does it take? Like, what do you dig into in terms of your confidence? What is it about that no that galvanizes you to move forward? Because I think a lot of people walk into a room, fear the word no, and therefore never make the ask. Well, that's your first mistake. Right. I think, you know, don't ask, don't get. Don't ask, don't get. Don't ask, don't get. And so I think it's really, really important to just, I mean, I get it. I Believe me, I get it. Um, you have to get over it. Yeah. I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> you have to get over it. It's true. You, you just have to take the punches. You just yeah. have to get over it and you have to know going into it that you will be told no. Yeah. You will be told no a lot. Yeah. And you know? in a way, you must, my sister's an entrepreneur and she says to me a lot of times for her, out of every 10 asks, there's one yes. Yeah. And so if you walk into every conversation thinking that nine out of 10 are going to be a no, mm-hmm. then if two out of 10 are a no, then you're in a great spot. <laughs> I mean, listen, when I was at CNN, I took a big bet on covering fashion. Yeah. And I sort of, for a little while, walked away from news. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, CNN decided they didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to create a weekly show on it. I get it. Yeah. I totally get it. That was tough to hear, though. Yeah, of course. And so I just had to find my way after that. And it's not easy. And somebody said to me after I left CNN, book a hundred meetings. A hundred meetings? I said, are you joking? 
I booked 100 meetings. You did. And tell me what came from those meetings. You know, a lot of it was no, mm -hmm. but, a, it, but a lot of those meetings led to other meetings. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and you know, I, I know this sounds so Pollyanna, but every meeting was a learning experience. Yeah, it really is. You know, and it really, it really is. is, even when you're told no. I mean, you kind of learn who the assholes are yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah. And there were a few. <laughs> but I also you think know. that there's also something so incredible about what you learn about yourself. You know, when I was writing my first book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, I had case studies. And I sort of sat down one day and I was like, okay, who do I know that if I email them right now would write a case study of 150 words? Which, mm -hmm. as you turn out, people don't really like to write 150 words and send it to you with four weeks of notice, as it turns out. People don't like to write five words. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? People just don't really like to do that. So I wrote my first list and I think my first list was probably 60 people. And out of that 60 people, 15 said yes. There you go. Right, 15. There you go. And I remember the first person I asked was someone who I had met at a mutual friend of ours, a luncheon that she does every year. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I just sat next to her at lunch, so I'm sure she'll say yes. If for no other reason, then she'll just feel guilty. And she was my first no. And she came back and said, I can't contractually do it. And I'm so sorry, but I would love to. And I remember thinking, God, that feels like a real punch in the stomach because I was so hopeful that she was going to sort of be the first person I asked. Well, especially you have this moment where it's a social moment where, where frankly, you do a lot of business, right? Exactly. And so, of course... What I will say is the flip side of that is it only takes one. It only takes one. And the other thing I learned from that too was no, no was as painful as that first one. Of course. After the first one, I mailed the other 59 people over the next two weeks and right. 15 said yes. And every time one came in, I would celebrate that as of the course. biggest win. Of course. Yeah. And I mean, it's like same thing, 100 meetings. 100 meetings. 100 meetings. But you were asking me a while ago what else I'm doing. So I sort of hate this term multi-hyphenate, you know, yeah. uh, because it, I don't know, I don't know why it annoys me, but I, it kind of is what a lot of us are doing, yeah. right? And so, yes, I'm contributing to CBS Sunday Morning, a show I love, and I feel so honored to be able to do that. I host a conversation series, which you mentioned, called The Atelier with Alina Cho at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, largely with fashion designers. I've been doing that this will be my ninth year, 2023, which is crazy. It feels like I started it yesterday. I am also co-producing a Netflix documentary on the life of Martha Stewart. One of my favorite people. She's love amazing. Martha. I love Martha and she's been incredible. What I will say, I can't say much about it, but what I will say is that uh, it's been incredible working with Netflix and incredible working with Martha. She's been incredibly forthcoming. Oh, I can't wait. And, to, I cannot wait to watch this. You know, she is, she's at that point in her life where she's like, what have I got to lose? And what do, what do I have to hide? Right. And that's a great place to be when yeah. you're doing a documentary. And she never stops, which and is she the never most stops. impressive thing about her. She never sleeps she never either. Sleeps. <laughs> but this is a perfect example of really just taking the ball and running with it. I remember being at a dinner and being told by Kevin Sharkey, uh -huh. who works very closely yes, with Martha, as you know, and is a friend of mine. Oh, I, Martha's thinking about doing a documentary on her life. And I said, amazing. When she does, let me know. Right. I'll do a story on it for CBS Sunday Morning. And he said, expletive that, why don't you produce it? And that is why you always put yourself out there. Just like you said, you no one will sell you as well as you. And isn't that crazy? But even 
I didn't think about it. Yeah. I thought, I'll do a story on the documentary. And he said, you are a storyteller. Yeah. You can produce this documentary. I love it. I love that story, And Alina. so what happened was, then as things go, you know, months passed and we were at a, I mean, this sounds so cliche, we were at a dinner in the Hamptons. <laughs> <laughs> and I was seated next to Martha and I said, and, and Kevin was there as well. And I said to Kevin, should I say something to her? And uh, he said, yeah. And I said, you know, I'm meeting this director, R.J. Cutler, next week for dinner. And his wife, do you want to join us? And she said, great. And that was it. And that's how it happened. And that's how it happened. Isn't that nuts? And also, that's how it happens a lot of times. I think a lot of people think that things happen by magic. You put yourself out there. You suggested the lunch or the dinner with the director. And that is why these things happen. And you put in the work you put in over 25 years of work as a journalist, even starting with that internship, to get to the point where you were confident enough to say that. Well, and that's right. And it sometimes it takes that long. Yes, it does. Right? It, it takes that does. long to build the courage. Yeah. Because it takes courage yes. to ask those questions and to put yourself out there, knowing that the answer could be no. Yeah. And that's why I say... I don't know how else to say it when you say, well, so many people are afraid of being told no. If you can just get over that, yeah, I think that's half the battle. It's life-changing when you suddenly realize that if you just ask the question, sometimes you're going to hear the word yes. You will hear no, and that doesn't ever feel good. It doesn't feel good for anyone. Right. But ultimately, what you're looking for is the ability to live the life you want by doing the things you want to do. Yes. And that takes putting yourself out there. It does. And I'm not going to lie. It's not easy. No. It's tough. It's tough. And people always say, oh, you're doing all these things. It's so great. And I think to myself, it's great. And the work is so rewarding. Um, but it's a lot of work. And it's, it's a, lot, it's a lot of hustle. It's a lot of and hustle. And anybody who is swimming in what is considered to be hopefully the top of their field. Mm -hmm. I always say, you're only as good as your last story. Yeah, absolutely. And so you've got to keep going. And if you don't, there's somebody waiting. Someone who's right hungrier. Somebody um, who's hungrier. Someone, someone who's yeah. hungrier. I always say fire in the belly. Fire in the you belly. have to have a fire in the belly. Yeah. Well, Alina, this has been such a pleasure. I cannot thank you enough oh my for gosh. being this here flew today. By. I know it flew <laughs> by. You. I feel the same way. Thank you so much. Uh, where can anyone listening find you? Tell us everything, Instagram, Twitter, whatever whatever you'd like to share. Please At share it now. the Alina Cho. Yes. T-H-E-A-L-I-N-A-C-H-O. No, <laughs> thank you. Um, on Instagram, on Twitter. And um, yeah, and, and you know, if you want to watch my stories and my interviews at the Met, you can find them all on YouTube. And you when know, do we find there. you with Martha? When will that launch, do you think? Well, uh, we hope sometime in 2023. Right. Maybe around this time next year. We'll see. I mean, it's a Netflix, partially a Netflix decision, largely a Netflix decision. <laughs> but we can um, follow along on Instagram. Yes, You'll tell us. Yes. Well, oh, don't worry. I will. <laughs> I will. I will be following along. Lydia, thank you. It was an and absolute pleasure. Congratulations. I'm so proud of you, oh, by the way, you. if I haven't said that. <laughs> thank you so much. You did at the beginning, but I will take the compliment. Okay, so great. thank you. Thank you. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in again this week for Claim Your Confidence. If you want to follow along at Lydia Finette on Instagram, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm also on Facebook 
or on my website, www.lydiafinette.com. I'll be posting about upcoming guests and recording sessions. If you're ever in New York, please feel free to stop by One Rock Plaza, where the newsstand studio's recording booth is. There's a plate glass window, so you can come by and say hi and wave while we're recording. Speaking of Rockefeller Center, a huge thank you to Rockefeller Center and to Newsstand Studio for this incredible podcast booth and the opportunity to be on air, claiming your confidence and teaching other people how to do it. And especially to Joe, who sits here as my fantastic producer and listens to us speak and makes everything sound perfect. And I would like for everyone who is listening today to think about this one thing before next week and feel free to DM me and answer to this question. What are you gonna do about getting over your fear of the word no? Like Alina said, lean into it, go for it. (laughs) Get over Um, it. (laughs) Get over it. But I want you to claim your confidence and live the life you want. So thank you for tuning in. I look forward to being with you again next week. And Alina, thank you for being here again. Thanks for having me. 